Greetings, friends. My name is Jessa McLean, and I'm here to provide you with some blueprints of disruption. This weekly podcast is dedicated to amplifying the work of activists, examining power structures, and sharing the success stories from the grassroots. Through these discussions, we hope to provide folks with the tools and the inspiration they need to start to dismantle capitalism, decolonize our spaces, and bring about the political revolution that we know we need. Houselessness is a policy choice. It is an intentional decision by a system that prioritizes profit over lives. It is a message to all people in society that they must toe the line or else. When I say it's a decision, that is because ending this crisis and providing housing for all would be the quote-unquote fiscally responsible decision, as well as obviously the moral one. Instead, our government chooses to spend money harassing and persecuting some of the most vulnerable members of our communities. During the last rabble rants, we were interrupted halfway through by the news that an encampment eviction was taking place in Sonia's Park in Toronto's Kensington Market. This was only a few days after the city tore down an encampment outside St. Stephen in the Fields Church, which is only a short walk away, and we discussed that in this episode. What this shows me is that the city is actively chasing unhoused people from park to park when they know our shelters do not have enough space for everyone. In this episode, Jessa and I sat down with advocate and community worker Diana Chan McNally to talk about the escalation in rhetoric and violent policy against the unhoused community. I have been thinking about this conversation ever since we recorded it, and as is often the case in this show, it is tied to so much more than what we initially set out to discuss. It's hard to capture everything I want to say, so let's just listen in and you can hear for yourselves. Welcome, Diana. Can you introduce yourself to the audience, please? Yeah, uh, my name is Diana Chan McNally, and I would just say that I'm a community worker working in downtown Toronto. You're also an author. And an author. Many hats. Um, <laughs> I like to keep it simple, but yes, I, I have written a number of op-eds uh, and a book chapter, and yeah. <laughs> yeah, I've been trolling your work in preparation for the trolling. interview. <laughs> well, I'm not leaving any negative comments behind, but I'm certainly siphoning off a lot of information, and we have for our show before, so thank you for coming on. You sent out a tweet. This is what prompted the interview request, mm -hmm. you sent out a tweet that talked about a high level of hatred being increasingly normalized. I used your language there as much as possible. I don't doubt it, but I wanted to unpack that with you. Yeah, you know, I think the, the tweet um, that you're referring to was in reference to a fake notice um, that a very bold person had been distributing to encampments in downtown Toronto, specifically Allen Gardens. And so um, I think what's what's really troubling about this is that the notice had the city of Toronto logo. Um, in its letterhead. And while if you look at the language, it's, you know, it's pretty not careful, we'll put it that way. Um, there are typos and, and just things that don't make a lot of sense, but it's written from the perspective of the municipal government. So we have people out there committing fraud, quite frankly. Um, if we're talking about crime, because crime is associated with encampments, we have people engaging in technically criminal behavior um, out of a, a very deep hatred um, for people who are forced to live outdoors. So that's what that's in reference to. But, you know, it, it stems a lot further than that. You know, I've been doing this work for, for a while now, um, since about 2014, and I think in this time period, I've seen, you know, there have always been ebbs and flows in how people feel about unhoused folks. But at this point, um, really being scapegoated, I think, for a lot of society's ills. And so, you know, people are experiencing an affordability crisis. But instead of concentrating on government about why is the price of food so high? Why is there no housing? We're kind of punching downward at this point um, and scapegoating unhoused people for all of these societal ills, which is deeply unfair because they're the folks who are most affected by them. I can keep going. <laughs> well, you talk about scapegoating. In my mind, I immediately think of migrants, immigrants, asylum seekers. They're kind of in the crosshairs in terms of blaming for the housing crisis as well. And you were at ground zero when those two intersections met at 128 Peter Street. We, we, we touched on it briefly in an earlier episode where 
clearly the attitudes towards immigrants, no, notably African immigrants, and the unhoused community really resulted in like a dire situation for folks that went ignored until folks like you and other advocates had to scream from the rooftops and really make a lot of noise around this. You think it's a it's indifference, right? I think sometimes we get frustrated. We're like, oh, people are just so indifferent to the plight of unhoused people. But this is the next level, right? This is, you're talking about outward hostility. Yeah, yeah. I think if you're citing, especially like 129 Peter Street, you know, it, I was unprepared, I think, for the level of hostility that actually was coming from all sides, um, not just from, you know, people actually of all political stripes we saw and heard so much anti-Black racism, not just at a systemic level, because it's a systemic issue that you have this particular demographic who are stranded outdoors. You can't tell me that is not systemic racism. It's so blatant um, that there's no other way to look at it. But at an individual level, um, I definitely had people calling uh, with racist rants, um, which was... (laughs) really surprised me. I guess I shouldn't be surprised, but, you know, I'm a white presenting person. And now I see, uh, in terms of anti-Black racism, what Black folks have to deal with all of the time. It's ludicrous. Um, And I think in the context of the folks who are outdoors, we heard from a lot of progressive, quote unquote, progressive people, we can't take care of our own. Why are we taking care of these people? As though it's an either or dichotomy. When these are all people, all people who are not mutually exclusive categories, um, who are now being denied access to basic resources. So um, I think in terms of hate in this particular situation, we got it from all political stripes, all sides, and it's ongoing. And I think it's really unfortunate. You're saying, you know, they're being scapegoated for the housing crisis. Guess what? The housing crisis has been ongoing since the 90s when we got out of building public housing at the national level. So it has nothing to do with our new immigration numbers. Uh, Quite frankly, we have governments that are not planning um, for this influx or for anybody. And whose fault is that? It's clearly theirs. Uh, And it's unfortunate to me that we even have um, other orders of government who are blaming newcomers for what is their fundamental problem. I would like to say I'm surprised by you hearing getting pushback from all ends of the political spectrum. Yeah. But I have recently seen more and more anti-immigration arguments pushed out by so-called leftists. And that's completely disheartening. You know, it's what happens, though, when people's back are against the wall and politicians are feeding this garbage down from the top and no other solution is, is afoot. I saw you on a panel after Olivia Chow won the mayor's race. Do you hold some hope that this new Toronto government will take tackling homelessness seriously and do planning around that? I know they need the help of provincial and federal counterparts, but I mean, that just goes unsaid no matter who's in office. But it is Olivia Chow this time around. Do you feel the same ways you did uh, the day after the election or the evening of the election? I think, you know, how I felt during the election or the night of the election, certainly there was a point because, you know, I was on the CBC panel and we didn't we didn't know what was going on because we were on the panel. We had no idea what was happening and where the votes were sitting. So we're just like all stressing out about, oh, my God, where is this going to go? And we had heard that Bailao was in the lead and and like freaking out about that. Um, I was really relieved when Olivia became mayor. Um, Now, I'm going to echo what Desmond Cole has said uh, on numerous occasions. It's like, yes, we have a a better, more progressive mayor, but that doesn't mean that we can rest on our laurels. Um, We have to continue to push. We can't be lazy about it because we can't expect that people are going to do the work that needs to be done. Um, I think she's more amenable to that. And in my experience, she's actually brought me into City Hall on a couple of occasions to discuss, um, in particular, to 129 Peter Street. But You know, I know a lot of her staff right now. I know a lot of the staffers now within City Hall. And what I can see even having been in this work a long time and even worked adjacent to the city, I was in a city-funded program um, pushing back against encampment evictions and, quite frankly, was the only city employee who was doing that, which was sad and lonely, but um, the honest truth. Um, 
what I've seen is that suddenly there's this relaxing uh, of people's attitudes around a lot of issues, but including homelessness. I think when Tory was in power, there was a lot of very tight centralized control over these issues and an inability to, to flex with them. It doesn't mean that I'm going to agree with the city and their approach on everything, but I think we're going to see a lot less of that kind of authoritarianism in our city government, which I hope, I hope will be for the better. But, you know, to your point, this is going to require all levels of government to step up and without funding, without um, attitudinal change, policy change at the federal level, who still kind of are like, what's a housing and aren't doing much about that. Um, and at the provincial level, where we just have like outward hostility um, to like every demographic in this province, except for the ultra wealthy insiders. Uh, I don't know how much change we're going to see. That's that's quite substantive. So um, it's a long struggle ahead. Since we're mentioning uh, encampment evictions, when Olivia Chow uh, got elected, I was maybe foolishly under the impression that that would mean that there would be no longer any more encampment evictions. Yet I had heard that the other day, and I didn't find out until yesterday, uh, about what happened at St. Stephen in the Fields Church. Um, under the pretense of clearing a tree or something like that, they they wiped out the encampment there. I saw. I think that they brought in one of their claw machines to... To crush some of the tents, and I'm hearing about trespass notices at Bellevue Park and Kensington Market that there might be another one on Monday. How is this still happening under Olivia Chow? And I mean, what what's happening to help fight against that? I guess. I think you know. To be fair to Olivia, she she still doesn't even have really a staff contingent. She has kind of like one permanent staff at the moment and hasn't really hired for the rest of the office. So, um, you know, I get asked about what the heck is going on from other counselors and from uh, the mayor, the mayor's office as well. And it's, it's wild because I think we also had this um, kind of culture at the city of Toronto where counselors didn't know a lot of the time what city staff were doing. Um, there's a lot of obfuscation under Tory and again, a lot of that authoritarian control. And now that that doesn't exist, we still have city departments and staff who are kind of acting rogue. Um, I think when we're talking about the Office of Emergency Management, I actually kind of think they're they're a bit of a rogue office. So um, they established an encampment office, which what other city government in the world has an emergency management team that is actively creating emergencies uh, and putting people at risk. It's it's wild um, that we have this entire office that had their funding increased actually this year under Tory um, with the sole purpose really of removing encampments. Um, I know that, you know, I've spoken to other counselors and they're like, don't worry, you know, we're going to transition. We had this ombudsman's report where we're going to transition into this multidisciplinary team who's going to take leadership over encampments. I thought that was actually really smart of the ombudsman um, because instead of kind of creating this really kind of bad political space where you're saying this office shouldn't exist anymore. I understand politics enough. I've worked inside uh, the beast, so to speak, at uh, the legislature, uh, the provincial legislature. I understand enough that you can't do that sort of thing in the polite world of politics. But he was being smart uh, and saying, instead of saying we won't give you leadership over this, we're effectively going to quash it by bringing in these other city departments to take over the file. But this is why I'm saying they're rogue. I think they're kind of resisting this happening and just doing their business anyway. And on top of that, they have a city councillor who is very hostile uh, to encampments and unhoused people more generally. So um, Diane Sachs, what the heck? What the heck? This lady. OK, I, I shouldn't be I shouldn't be dismissive like that. This person um, signed on to a policy document that I had co-authored in 2021 that basically said, no more encampment evictions. And yet we have her now uh, supporting the idea that unhoused people shouldn't be there. And in fact, we should erect a memorial to the dead uh, unhoused people in the city. Are we actively saying that we're going to remove living people to put up a memorial to their dead? 
what a perverse thing to actually suggest. And I actually think that she might try and push this forward. Um, we got some um, knowledge that apparently where the uh, encampment is uh, at St. Stephen's in the Fields, because that's actually considered a public transit right of way, uh, the lawn there, which is bizarre, doesn't belong to the church. It actually belongs to the city. We've heard that there's been an application put in potentially our understanding is maybe to turn this into a garden, a city garden. So I think she might actually push ahead with this, which is just gross. The fact that that solution does not cancel her or <laughs> no, we're going beyond that. It actually gains traction is so demonstrative of what you're talking about that people's image and perception of those that are unhoused is awful. I don't have a more eloquent word for it. It's just awful. Santiago and I were trying to just kind of get in the groove, have this discussion before we hit record, before you joined us. And I was kind of just grappling with the idea of what do people say when they want homeless folks removed from a public space? You know, a bench is what I was visioning, like a, a bench that they don't have a right to, to live on the bench. Like, but what did they say out loud, right? What do they say out loud to justify what they really mean? And Santiago was like, well, what they really don't want to see is the the kind of society that we've created. They don't want to be reminded just how inhuman our system is, right? How degrading it is. Um, and so, but what did they say out loud? And quite often it's the safety argument, right? Santiago reminded me it's safety, safety. And We've seen responses to the evictions in the same way that it was somehow for public safety. There's backlash against safe injection sites for the sake of safety and this real horrible, harmful correlation between those without shelter and violence or those with addictions and violence. And that just then justifies everything else. Right. Once you sell that to the public, that that is actually not just a public nuisance in the way like sex workers were portrayed. Well, like when we talked about the arguments used there, but but a danger. Um, I can only imagine like that allows people to witness what happened at Trinity Bell Woods and at Lamport and not do anything. Yeah, yeah. There's. It doesn't matter how much I've been talking about this over the years, and all my colleagues as well, there is this inherent perception that people who are unhoused are dangerous. And so there's this, like, stereotype that's incredibly persistent where it's like this, like, criminal addict who can't control themselves, uh, which is, <laughs> like, basically nobody, Um Really, but it, it's a sphere that's been stoked since the Reagan era, right? We're talking about this long-standing public perception of this figure of the homeless person, and people have there in their minds that this is this is what we're dealing with. And I even hear people when we're making this argument, it's like, well, no matter how you feel about homelessness, I will give you that you can absolutely loathe unhoused people. Fine, well, not fine, but I I can work with that, like on a political level. Don't you think the answer is still housing? Wouldn't that solve the problem, regardless of how you feel about it? But it's it's not about that, right? It's about punishing people. And I think, you know, to Santiago's argument, I think it's because uh, people do not like to be reminded that this society that we live in is inequitable, that they are privileged, that they have more than other people. Um, and so they want to see this actively disappear. Um, you know, and... <sighs> I have been unhoused in my life like a long time ago as a teenager. Uh, and I think what I also am really wary of is forcing people to tell their stories uh, of trauma so that they can be identified as a human being. Shouldn't we just take it at face value that people are people and they require support because we have human rights in this country and more broadly? Uh, that doesn't seem to be the case. And so we have to prove that you're a quote unquote true homeless person, um, somebody deserving of help, which is to say that we need to hear your trauma and deem it traumatic enough for us to actually give you housing or any kind of support at all. It's pretty gross. Um, and I think at this point, this idea of true homeless, I've seen people literally write this like on Twitter and beyond true homeless people. Um, I think the idea. What do they mean by that? 
I think they mean people who are like, oh, they worked a full time job and they've got kids, um, you know. Oh, so like this is like no at fault, right? Yes. Of no fault yeah. of their own is what they mean. Exactly. Never having used drugs and this kind of thing. It's like, well, you know, what we're getting at here is the only qualifier for being unhoused uh, is to not have housing. You're rent burdened. This is what happened. This is why you're houseless. There's no other reason beyond the fact that you're rent burdened. What I'm trying to say is like with all the people that are rent burdened, right, like how I've definitely lived paycheck to paycheck. I currently live in my mother's home because I have no income. And so I understand the precariousness of housing, how lucky I am to have someone to shelter me. But couch surfing, like we've seen it all. How do I, I I'm still struggling with how folks still feel that way, how folks cannot understand that they they could be there, that that person is no inherently different than themselves. That's so frustrating. Em- empathy, I think, just ran out at some point during the pandemic it, and pretty quickly, actually. Um, but I think this goes back to, to Santiago's point is that people don't want to think of themselves as being like these folks, even if they are, they're very close to that situation. And I think that's really alarming to people that they don't want to actually face it. Even people who own houses. And, you know, I do have some people in my life that are around my age who have managed to buy a house, but they're so burdened by their mortgage. You're like, okay, you're just being fleeced. And now your landlord is the bank, um, as opposed to just some jerk uh, who may try to evict you for any, any possible reason. So it is not all that different, uh, even if you do have more resources. And most of us, even at that point, uh, really aren't even able to, to pay our bills. My, my brother-in-law is an ER doc, and his wife is also a doctor. Uh, and they are struggling to keep up with the cost of living. These are high-level, high-paying jobs in contrast to what most of us uh, are doing and working. Um, and I think it's wild that we have a society at this point where jobs that should be like blue chip, essentially, um, infallible, uh, people are still even struggling with the cost of living with those paychecks. I wanted to ask about some of the tactics that um, we've begun to see being used as justification uh, to evict. I know I've, I've heard about uh, park restoration, uh, obviously the the tree. It seems like they're having to become increasingly um, sneaky and their excuses. Um, when you brought that up earlier, Santiago, about these kind of loopholes being used, it was in reaction to the Ontario court ruling that ruled essentially evicting encampments when municipalities aren't doing enough in terms of providing adequate shelter is against their charter rights. And so, but they are still within their capability, it's still within their capability to use things like park restoration and and whatnot to justify those mass evictions. Yeah. You know, with that court ruling, um, a lot of people were celebrating and I was kind of like, yeah, I have a lot of issues with this and it certainly did not go far enough. And I think the other thing that, um, we, we need to remember is that that was in the context of Waterloo specifically and their local bylaws. So it's not applicable to other municipalities unless we similarly uh, launch lawsuits, really, um, and we could use that as a precedent. So it made a difference in the context of Waterloo. But I think the thing that was really important that was missing out of that particular ruling is that we did not declare unhoused people an equity-seeking group. What the heck? Who is more equity seeking than somebody who is living outdoors? Um, We don't want to establish a a human rights precedent around this, which I think is really unfortunate. And I think, again, would address like it's more symbolic in the sense of people are so stigmatized. Um, We don't want to see them as not uh, or as disadvantaged, quote unquote, pull up those bootstraps and get yourself out of this situation, blah, blah, blah. Um, We don't want to acknowledge that. So we're unwilling, I think, to give people. Um, that kind of designation, because it would mean uh, that we would have to make lots of government commitments uh, toward equity. And that just 
they don't want to do that. <laughs> it's not going to happen. And, you know, in, what you're saying in terms of the loopholes, yeah. Um, technically, in the city of Toronto, uh, the policy recommendations that I put forward in 2021, uh, effectively, not as I wrote them, but the idea apparently uh, is municipal, like the municipal approach, which it's not. Uh, and in fact, what's wild about the city of Toronto is that depending on where you are in the city, what park, there's a different approach being used. Um, so in University Rosedale, Diane Sachs, we're talking about, you know, St. Stephen's in the fields. We have a more proactive removal approach um, and harassment uh, kind of campaign. In uh, Allen Gardens, I don't know what city council was thinking. They're like, they're using the Dufferin Grove approach, which is the model that basically we kind of purported, but I think needs to be refined significantly. It's not, not ideal as it is. It needs to be improved on a lot, but it's more ideal than we've had in the past. They've only just put it into place in Allen Gardens. And so the model is essentially like, we will give you time, we will, um, you know, give you information about housing options, shelter options, but ultimately you're the one who gets to choose. And there is housing available. That's what the Dufferin Grove model was. Uh, and there's only just starting it in Allen Gardens. But the other problem with the model, which I never agreed with, is that no new people in the park. So if you try to move into the park, and at this point, I'm not sure how they can even stop um, folks from moving in. It's a big park and there's a lot of people living there. Um, but the idea is we're going to house or remove um, through passive means, shelter people uh, who are already in Allen Gardens to reduce uh, the visibility of encampments. So, you know, the ethos behind what we were trying to do is not about ultimately the goal is to not have encampments in parks because it's hard to look at. But the goal is to not have encampments in parks because people have somewhere to live. Um, it was meant to be person-focused uh, and human rights compliant. And I think they've kind of taken that ethos and just like bent it into this really kind of gross thing. I remembered what I was going to ask about again, which was about um, the how the city has started preventing uh, people from helping those in the encampments. Um, I, I know a lot of amazing people who, with Encampment Support Network, Park Dell Organize, and all of these different groups who have been for years doing so much to help out these encampments. And I know that recently one of them was arrested and held for, I believe, 32 hours at Division 14 in Toronto uh, after they were banned from entering the parks because they were helping uh, people in the parks. Could you tell me a little bit about about that? It's it's always been contentious, I think, having volunteers uh, in the parks. And, you know, early on, the city of Toronto was like, they're not trained um, in order to do this. I'm like, well, you know, there there is there are some things to know about working anti-oppressively with people who are unhoused. Like, I'm not going to deny that at all. But that was an excuse that was being leveraged to stop everybody, essentially, um, from because the police support. are so much better at that. <laughs> oh sure right? they like know how to deal that's, with crisis that's a much more and... clear fairer alternative what ridiculous I mean it's, it's wild because we know we know and we had um a report that came out of uh, kind of a coalition of agencies. And these are not like radical agencies. I'm talking about like the neighborhood group. Um, but we had a report that was coming out of that being like, hey, you know what? About 10% of all interactions with the public uh, in terms of police are with unhoused people. And we can estimate that millions of dollars are being poured into ticketing um, and harassing people without housing, which why is that a good use of money? It doesn't do anything to address homelessness. It doesn't make people safe. Um, it's just a harassment campaign that, you know, our public money is going into. Um, obviously, we know that cops aren't great with unhoused folks. The end. Um, but you're right. Uh, we want to limit um, support that's being given to people because we have this deeply kind of entrenched mindset that, again, they need to pull up their bootstraps. And I can take this all the way back to like hundreds of years ago to the Elizabethan poor laws. Uh, to be perfectly frank, um, this is coming out of the era of Queen Elizabeth the first, not the second. And we had entrenched in policies in England, Renaissance England, that there are deserving poor and there are undeserving poor. Deserving poor are like women and children and people living with disability. Um, and the undeserving poor are you know, just adults who are lazy and not working hard. 
you can see this literally in OW and ODSP. ODSP gives you a little bit more money because you're someone who's living with a disability, um, whereas OW, it's like it's less because why the heck are you not working? Um, and so we're a colonial country. We don't like to talk about it. We don't like to think about it. But this is literally a colonial mindset that we've transposed from Renaissance England and is so deeply entrenched, not just in our mindset, but in our actual policies and laws that it's hard um, to look at people who are unhoused as being anything less than undeserving. You have hundreds of years of this mentality that we have to contend with. Um, and people really don't want to think of, yeah, unhoused folks as, as human beings. Sorry for getting like weird and historical, but like, I think it's no, true. It, it's important. It's it, it, in terms of talking about the systems involved as well, right? Like capitalism requires punishing people who aren't engaging in the labor market as they quote unquote should, right? There needs to be examples made. There needs to be a subclass of folks struggling as a reminder that the rest better keep working regardless, right? So it's important that they reinforce these narratives from the top down. And I think you could probably give us dozens of policy examples that are kind of couched in helping uh, homelessness, at, but do anything but just obvious disdain for those undeserving poor. But for the record, we treat the deserving poor pretty shit, too. <laughs> Oh, yeah. But no question. No question. A couple more bucks. That's that's what we're doing. And no accessibility. Certainly no accessible housing. No. And it's I think one of the more shocking things you shared there for me and I didn't chime in then was the emergency committee around encampments, but not housing. Yeah. Right. There is yeah. a housing committee, but there's no urgency in the title. Right. It's just at plus Brad Bradford's now the chair of it. So I don't know what to think of that. But they do see the encampments as an emergency that require a very expensive police response, right? We did get the the receipts for the encampment evictions. Yeah, and that was like, just the three evictions. And it was like two, t over $2 million or almost $2 million. Significant. Right. Yeah, so let's yeah. say you don't care that people were kettled and that police on horseback were set on the most vulnerable people in the city of Toronto. Like, let's pretend you, you don't you don't care about that at all. But surely you understand that over $2 million could make a significant impact in addressing housing. And that is just the three evictions that Diana was talking about. The amount of funds like that you've already kind of explained and that we haven't even touched on that go into Band-Aid solutions, harmful responses, like removing all the benches from Union Station. Like that even costs money to, to remove those benches. It's endless what we will do to erase homeless people, but not homelessness. Yeah. And it's and this is what I, I want to kind of cycle back to, to the beginning of this conversation. It's irrational. It's an irrational response. And so, you know, why I brought up this like deserving and undeserving poor um, thing is this is about hierarchies. This is about creating a subclass, to your point, um, because we want to punish somebody for the ills of society. And it's not a fiscal argument. Conservatism is rarely ever about a fiscal argument. Uh, it's a social argument about reinforcing hierarchies, right? So um, I think in this case, yeah, we will throw endless money at making sure that hierarchy is upheld because we will not see uh, these people as deserving, as humans, as us. Uh, I wanted to ask about, um, you know, some examples of alternative solutions. And the one that gets talked about a lot is what Finland did, right? Uh, when it comes to addressing homelessness, what do you, uh, where they decided to just house everyone because it would be cheaper. I uh, don't know how that's going today. I think that was from 2018, so I don't know if that's still working in 2023. But um, what do you think of solutions like that? Like, is that the more logical <laughs> answer yeah. from a fiscal yeah. perspective? Yeah, you know, and I, I actually went to Helsinki last winter, um, and I've talked uh, a little bit with the folks who actually created the Housing First policy that we very poorly transposed into North America. It's not the same at all. I want to really kind of emphasize that even though they say it's Housing First in Toronto and Canada more broadly, no, it's not. 
I don't even understand how you think it is. Uh, it clearly is not. Um, in Helsinki, it's like, you know, we're dealing with a, a, a very small country, a couple million people, the entire country. And Helsinki as a city is, is substantially smaller than Toronto because Toronto itself has a larger population than pretty much the entire country of Finland. Um, at this point, you know, we have at least between 10,500, which is the city's own statistic, and more likely up to 20,000 people, including hidden homeless folks uh, who are unhoused in this city. So the proportion of people per capita, it's like significantly more unhoused people than, say, in Helsinki or Finland more generally. Um, if we're talking about a housing first approach, yeah, they just give people housing. And then they're just like, well, we're going to worry about the other stuff later. One here, it's like, we don't have the housing. Um, so there is no possibility of housing first if it doesn't exist unless you either invest in building, but also um, more rent supplements, RGI housing, ideally, because that's the best solution, public housing. People talk about supportive housing. I hate supportive housing. I go on about that. Maybe that's for another day. Um, they just give people housing. And here it's like, are your taxes done? Do you have all of your ID? Um, have we put in the application? Where are you in the queue? Uh, that's not housing first. Our social housing wait list is like 85,000 names long. There's no possibility of just giving somebody housing and then just like, okay, we'll worry about the rest later. So it's just nuts to me that they even say that that's what they're doing when it's one, not, and two, impossible uh, at this point in time, um, given the systems that we're currently existing in. So I think Finland has it right. And um, having been there, it's not like they don't have some unhoused people. I've been there and I've seen that there are at least some in the downtown core of Helsinki. And I've even seen somebody berating uh, somebody like a man who was unhoused and trying to panhandle. And this other fellow clearly housed in a suit was just berating him while other people were just walking by. They don't love unhoused people, but they understand that housing is a pragmatic solution. So it doesn't have to be about winning hearts and minds, even though that's what I want. It just has to be recognition that the only solution to homelessness is housing. I don't even care, ultimately, at this point, as long as you agree with me that we need to build housing and put people in it. No, I'm with, like, <laughs> I'm not satisfied with that. I understand the practicality with it because I wanted to say to you, one of my questions was, okay, without having to contribute to trauma porn, without making people share intimate details of their lives, and having to then amplify these stories with great effort, how else can we get people to care? Is your answer to to sell the practical solution, to sell the fiscal answer? I mean, no, because again, it's not about fiscal politics, as we know. Um, I don't know. I think I'm just so frustrated at this point because of how much hate that I don't think I can function just being in an environment where we are being berated all of the time for the work um, that we're doing and for the people that we are supporting. So no, it isn't satisfactory. I'm just tired as heck. Um, and I just need solutions to be in place. But, you know, how do you get people to care? I don't know. We are at such a point where individualism is everything. Everything is about, even in, in our field, like even just doing activist work, it's about like the star activist. Um, no, it's about a collective response. It's about solidarity. Um, we have to work together. That's how society functions. We're not going to stop tumbling toward omnicide of this planet um, off the backs of a few heroes. It's going to take everybody pitching in. But we just don't think like that. We're so against collectivism. We'll just label it communism like that's a bad thing. Um, it's a great thing. Uh, <laughs> and, and just I, I don't know. I don't know. I, it's so entrenched that I don't know how to get people to even care about people in their own circles. Um, they just care about themselves a lot of the time. That's the only kind of perspective that they have. And I don't know how to reverse that or undo it or be like, human beings, we're all going to die. Let's get together and stop acting like this. I don't know. No, like we've tr we've tried that too, right? Environmentalists are like, no, 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 we've been that. We've, we've tried that for a very long time. Don't look up movie, you know, kind of <laughs> lays that home. But, you know, it's... 
when it's systemic, it is like the chicken and the egg. You don't, we need system change to get attitude change because a lot of these attitudes are reinforced and a byproduct of capitalism that you live under from the time you're born to the time you die. And so how do you undo that without showing them, without then living within a different system? How do you get people to want a different system if they don't know better? I would like to see at least government, and I hate electoral politics. I really do, um, and I hate. Oh, you're in good company here, friend. <laughs> okay, I. But I understand it's the system we live in, and the policymakers and power holders um, are elected politicians. With you know, they're, well, there are a lot of them are puppets uh, with uh, corporations and so forth behind them, and we know this to be true. But who writes legislation? It's government, right? Um, you know, I would like to see bolder moves uh, at that level um, and more com- more community-guided uh, principles in terms of electoral politics. Um, you know, very few politicians will let you have any kind of input um, into how legislation is written or motions, etc., question pitches even. It's just we don't have access to that kind of space. It's its own weird world. And yeah, I worked in Queens Park. It's messed up. I spent two months there and I was like, I learned something. I'm good. Bye. I could not deal with it. But it was important to me to just like go in and, and have a look inside behind the curtain. Um, we need bolder moves uh, from politicians. We need bold politicians um, who aren't just going to succumb uh, to the same mindset that we've seen again and again. And so just neoliberal politics. Um, but, you know, for those of us who are who care, it's like I kind of try to balance my work in terms of just like engaging with electoral politics and trying to push in that space, but also mutual aid. Um, I think that's a valid and at this point, maybe one of the only radical responses that we have within our control is to engage in mutual aid. And mutual aid is a way of pushing back on electoral politics, too. We take care of us, right? And Santiago, I know you're not chiming in here, but the Black Panther example is goes to where I was stuck a minute before, a way of teaching folks communitarianism, a collective living it, breathing it and understanding its value through mutual aid or, you know, when we're talking about the tenant unions and and creating those third spaces for connections, not always fighting, but and then that helps then shift the way people see their community members, all of them. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So yeah, to your point, that's, that's That's hard work though, right? Yeah, it's hard work. (laughs) It is emotionally laborious. And I think really difficult when we're talking about, especially homelessness because, because the level of stigma, um, but we see lots of groups engaging in this already. Um, people like myself, it's like, yeah, I'm, uh, well, I'm unemployed right now, um, but I'm still working nonstop for absolutely no money. Um, But it's like I do work in the field. Usually I'm also doing this mutual aid stuff and I'm also doing political work. And I think you don't need even you don't need to work in the field, but you need to have these two things um, kind of coalescing, I think, to kind of push back on the systems in place. And I would love to see more mutual aid. It's, I think, the most valid response that people can engage in at this point in time. Do you have any uh, examples you want to highlight of some mutual aid work that is being done uh, to to give people some hope, I guess, or uh, give me some hope because I definitely need some of that? <laughs> I mean, you, you've already named some of the groups that are engaging in this. Um, I, you know, I I deeply appreciate that people will give their time um, and their resources and commitment um, to these spaces. But it's like it's not just about, you know, the work that I'm doing, the field that I'm in. Um, We have amazing like migrant worker and worker responses as well. You're talking about tenant unions. Um, It goes across the board. It's like we see these small pockets of like mutual aid in terms of like particular issues kind of popping up. I think what I would love to see is all of this kind of coalescing uh, into a movement. It's like we're all engaged in our little spaces, but it's like, can we take it forward together? Jessa, you're shaking your head. You're angry. You disagree. (laughs) (laughs) Not at all. But it's I've had so many guests get there, get that we need this massive coalition that, that crosses many social movements because in the end they're all connected or, you know, uniting the left is also a similar discussion and everyone need, 
Everyone knows it needs to happen. I know. But no one knows how to do it. And so that's what this show is about, and we can't get there. And I'm sorry, I'm getting upset because... I'm sorry. We've had so many guests, and I feel like... We get so close. We have so many answers. But it's that last piece, that last uniting piece that's missing. I just want to get there. And... (laughs) I'm just, I need that one guess, so, like, don't feel bad, that comes on, and they know the answer, and I know that's not how it's going to work, I know that's not how it's going to work, but I think I, I just keep trying to get there, and um, hearing you say it again is, like, damn, you know, it's it's very validating to know, like, yes, that it that's where we got to get, but, yeah. I need more answers. I need more answers. I and I I think unfortunately I I also don't have them. I think you know we do need more of a willingness to collaborate and you know we're we're always on the defensive and that includes within our own groups. We have to get past it and be collaborative. It's really hard. It's really hard and you know in terms of politics I've put myself into this weird space where I'm I'm the guy who will not personally attack you. That comes with a lot of trouble, and it's really hard. And sometimes I'm just like, Whoa, fuck this person, I'm just going to fucking lose it. And, like, I feel it. I feel it, and I have to control it um, because you always need somebody who can, who can be that collaborator, even if it comes with a lot of strings attached and it does impact, I think, um, the quality of work and my ethos. Um, ultimately, it's like, in the space of politics... You know, you get you lose a lot when you do that, but somebody's got to do it. Um, and I had to because for a long time I was working with the city. It was just a necessary position that somebody had to do. Um, it sucks, but there is value to that. But it's harder when you're talking about politics. We're talking about groups who should be in solidarity with, with each other. So we need to have that collaborative approach and just set aside ego for a moment. Um, to say, how can we support you? How can we support each other? What are our commonalities? Ultimately, everything that's happening impacts all of us. We're just looking at it from these particular lenses. So um, it would be wonderful to be able to coalesce. Um, I just think we need to get past some of this defensiveness for it to even begin. And I hate being critical like that, but I think I think it's true. No, I know exactly what you're talking about. When we had Bruno on from the York Southwest Tenant Union, I'm going to reference Bruno, I think, until this show is done, like forever, because he almost just, it was like an off the bat comment. He did, I don't think he thought much about it, but he was like talking about working with as many people as possible. And he's like, my problem's not with you or how you do your shit. It's with landlords, right? Our common enemy is the same. All these social issues that we've had on, everything that we've talked about here with you, Diana, like it's the same common enemy. There is a uniting factor there. And yeah, I I tried to absorb that because I've been in those organizing spaces where we can't work with them. They didn't handle this issue very well a couple of years ago. And so, you know, you can't work with them. And these folks, you know, they're not they're struggling with identity politics and and how they can touch on intersectional politics. And, and so we can't work with them. And it's very, very frustrating. You can hear a million reasons coming out from very progressive people that understand the end goal. And, um, yeah, we find too many reasons not to. Yeah. And I, I always actually just come back to the Cobb River um, uh, manifesto where there's the manifesto, but like we have this group of people who are basically launching intersectional and identity politics and saying they have to make coalitions, even with groups that don't even fully understand what it is they're about, because this is how we liberate everybody. Um, we have to do it as a collective. It doesn't come as this scalpel, the sharp knife that is making incisions in very precise ways. It comes holistically. Um, I, I try to always recall that because it's hard to think like that. And we often are criticizing each other. Um, We often even organize against each other laterally, uh, as opposed to pushing upward, which is not, I'm gonna say it's not a productive use of our time. Um, We are all gonna die. (laughs) Like again, talking about omnicide, it's like, we we have to put some of this shit aside or learn to work with each other in good ways 
create rules if you have to, if that's going to help facilitate. Um, but we have to get together and do this because this, this scalpel approach, this precise approach, it's not enough. Jessa mentioned the Black Panthers earlier, and all of this just reminds me of um, Fred Hampton and the Rainbow Coalition and that movement in, in, in Chicago back in the, the late 60s of bringing different groups successfully together who who had never worked together, bringing together gangs, bringing together poor white groups, poor Latino groups, poor black groups. Like, that is, that is so much just what we need. And, and, I mean, we know what happened there. And we know, like, I think that sometimes we underestimate how much, like, the, the, the state sabotage role uh, plays into it. Um, and yeah, I, I don't even know where I'm going with this because that's just like, that's, that's what I'm thinking about. And that's where we need to get. And I've been, I feel like I've been trying to figure out how to get there for the past five years and not even close. So yeah, uh, don't take it personally. <laughs> it's not you. It's, it's how we think it's, it's the world, it's society. It's this crass individualism that we've all absorbed, all of us. Um, and it's really, it's really unfortunate um, and so hard uh, to fight back against. <sighs> I mean, I'm, I'm trying to organize something for the end of the month. And our vision is uh, to have this be absolutely just like across issues. Um, so it's the overdose, International uh, Day of Overdose Awareness on the 31st. We know that we're getting so much pushback around safe consumption sites. I think that Ford is going to leverage this into privatized healthcare um, because you force people into privatized treatment centers. That is big money, big, big money. That's what I think is going to happen. I don't want it to happen. But we're, this is a class war. This is a class war that we're going through right now. Um, we need to just come together. And I want, you know, safe consumption sites and harm reduction to kind of just be this this lightning rod where we can say this is about people dying. Uh, and it's not just us doing harm reduction work. It's everybody. We have so many people dying right now um, because of poverty, because of the toxic drug supply, um, so many different reasons. Can we not just focus on that and just stop this level of death? So we're going to try again and see where it goes. Um, I'm hoping that we can we can at least for one event one day come together in a good way. Um, but it's it's hard. I don't know. I don't know what else to say about it. I feel what you're feeling. And I don't know. We just have to keep trying. And at least we know. We know you do this with so many different groups, so many different issues. You know, a lot of people are on the same page. So um, you get it. And you are connectors as well by even having this podcast. So so thank you for that. That is a wrap on another episode of Blueprints of Disruption. Thank you for joining us. Also, a very big thank you to the producer of our show, Santiago Halu Quintero. Blueprints of Disruption is an independent production operated cooperatively. You can follow us on Twitter at BP of Disruption. If you'd like to help us continue disrupting the status quo, please share our content. And if you have the means, consider becoming a patron. Not only does our support come from the progressive community, so does our content. So reach out to us and let us know what or who we should be amplifying. So until next time, keep disrupting.